30 take million, that's inc- excluding the illegal immigrants. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just stick to the official figure. I know you can say that in Tower Hamlet's brother. Now, this is what Malcolm did. He said the 22 million black, black back in his day, 22 million. He went around Africa, he went around the Middle East, and he internationalized his cause amongst the Muslims. You know, I, I, mean, I always a, say, I always say, this community here is is, is a sleeping giant. We we just need to use our resources used in a strategic way, mm. and, and with some people showing some leadership. Europe, for instance, it claims democracy, but did you know that obviously the Greeks didn't invent democracy in the first <laughs> place? It was the Iraqis. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum and welcome to a new episode of the Unscripted Podcast. I'm your host, I'm your host Salman Bhatt and we've been away for a while so we thought we'd get a special guest and, and also tick off our diversity quota as well at the same time. So we've got a Yorkshireman and uh, welcome <laughs> uh, Ustad Yahya Bhatt. Yahya. Careful brother, yeah. you know I've only been there for 10 years. <laughs> Yahya is a... Uh, a research director at the Ayan Institute, mashallah in London, and he's also community historian on uh, researching community, matters. community historian, Co- community, community leader, and community historian, <laughs> focusing on British Islam. Mr. Bart, Mr. Bart, yeah. yeah, and uh, Bart, Mr. Bart, yeah. And your recent report from the Ayan uh, uh, Institute is about Muslim minorities. It's entitled "Ummah at the Margins: Past, Present, and Future of Muslim Minorities." So, assalamu alaikum, uh, Sheikh Yahya. We've had you on before, but it was the lockdown and it was online, and I don't remember much. Uh, it was <laughs> so blurry, brother. Yeah, it, it was a big blur. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna start as though uh, you know you, it's the first time here because it's the first time you know uh, our our spiritual um, matrixes are brother, matrices thank, are thank, intertwining. Thank you for inviting me to your humble abode. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm exactly. honoured. I'm honoured. Please do take a biscuit. While I uh, while I introduce I, I, the first part of our, I try not to eat yeah. food props. Sorry. <laughs> uh, we're going to start off with a rapid fire. I don't remember if I did this before, but it's something we started doing uh, a while ago. Okay. Just to get you know. I think I saw John, John, Jonathan Brown fail at that. Yeah. If I remember. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> while I get um, get my sound effects ready. Yep, ready. Um, It's a clear thing, you know. I, I I ask you a quick question, and the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay, so this could be dangerous, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite food? Hamburgers. Biryani or naan? Uh, naan. Cake or gulab jamun? Cake every time, brother. Tea or coffee? Coffee every time. Nice. Uh, Marx or Gwinnon? <laughs> uh, <laughs> neither. <laughs> Coco Pepsi. Um, Coca Cola, brother, please. Coca Cola, astaghfirullah. Uh, football or cricket? Football. Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat? Uh, neither. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> you don't have to, just press <laughs> one of the buttons. <laughs> You've disarmed me. It is, I, I think uh, it was Jonathan Browdy mentioning that. He said, What's a Hadouken? And I was like, uh, this <laughs> and they were they were they were cussing each other as well afterwards uh, in the Yaqeen Institute that you know Omar Suleiman was saying oh he doesn't yeah, Jonathan Brown doesn't know what Hadouken is but anyway uh, it's good to have you here and to break the ice a bit and uh, there's a lot to talk about actually because la- since last time you came as you know you've been quite prolific in your writings and stuff and essays mm. and uh, articles and stuff hopefully one day for Islam Twenty One C but. Uh, uh, your recent, I want to talk about your most recent report uh, mm. for the Ayan Institute. For some reason, I keep wanting to say Ayan Hersi Ali. <laughs> Do yeah, you get that I, a lot? I, I know it's sort of like it, it's Hard like a wired. mental association, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, it's all right. You know, resist the temptation, yeah. brother. We're something new. <laughs> Ayan Institute. Um, why do Muslim minorities matter? They matter because 
over 400 million Muslims around the world are minorities. They matter because every part of the Ummah is equal, right? So, you know, if every Muslim matters, matters and every minority, Muslim minority matters, you know? Yeah. And one in five Muslims lives in a minority. Wow. One in five. One in five, yeah. And half of those live in India, just one country. Um, you know, so what happens in India, what happens in China, you know, whether you've got these big historical minorities mm. under great pressure, okay, and difficulty, you know, it matters um, that we don't, they don't seem to have a champion in the world, really. Yeah. Uh, and so we really need to think, you know, really hard about um, how we talk back to the Muslim majority world, not, not in an accusatory way, but how we develop a mature relationship. So, because I'm, I what I'm trying to say is, we need to mature politics of ummah. Mm. Uh, so, I suggest that the virtuous politics of ummah is not a win-lose situation. So, you know, there's going to be a loser in the ummah for somebody else to win. It's got to be a win-win, and that means the Muslim majority world and the Muslim minority world both have to win. But to both win, they've got to they've, we've got to change the relationship because it's lopsided at the moment. At the moment, what's happening is that you've got. Muslim minorities seen as either strategic liabilities or assets for national interests of Muslim yeah. majority countries, which are kind of in right, you know, they're in competition with each other sometimes or cooperate, often they're in competition. And they see minorities in, in the West or Africa or elsewhere, they see them as either liabilities or, or, or sometimes they see them as assets for their interests. So they spend lots of money kind of, you know, extending uh, soft power maybe. Towards. Well, so some nations do, yeah. you know. Uh, you know, for me, like the Premier League of these are is, you know, uh, when I say the Premier League, these are the ones that actually are ambitious and want to not just talk to the diasporas. Like Pakistan might see its core audience mm. as being Pakistanis globally, but I think the the big Islamic soft powers, if I can put it that way, they actually see themselves having a, a wider message mm. that goes across the world. And to the, the Muslim minorities generally, so it's not ethnically defined, right? Mm. They have a general to Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, uh, Qatar, UAE, and Turkey would be my top five. <coughs> but other mm. countries like Iraq since 2003, sorry, so post the American withdrawal mm. and the, you know, the, the rise of the Maliki government and so on, th th there's been a big push of soft power in Iran, but I still put them at the second tier. And you'll have yeah. other countries, Morocco, Jordan, you'll have other countries that sometimes do things that have a kind of pan-Islamic kind of slant. They're not ethnic, they're not about, they're not about reaching out to, Morocco's not about Morocco reaching out to other Moroccans per se, they're kind of casting a wider net. But for me, the top five are the ones I mentioned. Yeah. And so the thing is that, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more worldly wise and understand that, we, you know, what we talk about, what we know, but we... We know, but we don't talk about, which is basically that, you know, they're pushing kind of, kind of their universal idea of Islam, but often, obviously, for national interests, mm. you know. Like and a proxy, I guess, between Saudi and Iran, for example. Yeah, proxy and conflicts. And, it go, and, it, yeah. and it's gone on for, 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 for decades, and it's had different versions. You know, in the 60s, it was Egypt versus Saudi Arabia. After 1790, it was Iran versus Saudi Arabia. Mm. Arguably, since two thousand and and one, it's it's extended and it's become a bit more complicated, you know, after <laughs> with the war on yeah. terror and everything. But yeah. you know, you've had you've had different versions of this, and that's fed into lots of things, you know, like uh, theology, fiqh, um, scholar networks, jamaat, how jamaats get funded and patronized, yeah. how the agenda of jamaats that established in in the West, for instance, you know, so yeah. it's had a lot of, um, and I'm not saying that it, my argument is not that we cut ties. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we have to have a mature a maturation of. We need a win-win because mm. I think sometimes some of those things were disruptive for what we were trying to build here, for instance. And is that and so, what your what your motivation was for? For doing this research and writing this report, it was one of them. It yeah. was one because it's a broad report. The report is like a scoping report. It's a conceptual. So, obviously, <laughs> you know, I did my research before you know, before starting this podcast. But I did want you, you to imagine oh, okay. <laughs> just first of all, just kind of imagine a hypothetical scenario where you're talking to someone who only read the executive summary. So, just I mean, out there. <laughs> 
So I've been busy. Come on, um, but yeah. So you know, what was what was your motivate? What are, what were your other motivations for this report? And 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 just what are the 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 broad kind of outlines of it? Okay, my 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 big thing, probably biggest thing, is that I see a sense of fatigue. Okay, so what I see is that people feel that when you talk about the ummah, there's always some cynical agenda behind it, or somebody's mm. trying to make money, or whatever. There's a lack of like. A, sort of steam running out of it I would say right too many hustlers too, there's too much hustle <laughs> and there's not enough baraka basically yeah. and and part of that I think is us um, you know f- from where we're situated as a minority rethinking what, how that works for us and not n- and not for others mm. you know that that's basically all it is being like confident enough to be independent in our thinking and dialoguing back and you know try, trying to set our agenda the other thing is We've been firefighting, especially since nine eleven. Hardly yeah. get a chance to breathe. I think it's sort of slowing down a bit now, and the tensions on China really and Russia, yeah. and because of that, the West has sort of you know they've got new enemies to fight, and and was you know I'm not saying we've gone off the radar, but we're certainly not mm. in the limelight in the way that we were. So I think that, you know, and also, you know, so, and that's not to say we don't have problems. The report goes into the kind of dangers of kind of rising nationalism, what that means for all kinds of minorities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ethnic minorities and foreigners and Muslims yeah. and so on. But the thing is, yeah, that, that my, my thing is that I don't think that Ummah solidarity is something we should take for granted. It's part of faith. Yeah. You know, you love for your brother what you want for yourself. You're honor bound to defend your fellow Muslims' honour, dignity, life, etc. right? Mm. We grow up with that, but the thing is, it's kind of like we all treat it as a kind of almost like a resource on tap, yeah? yeah? Without thinking about actually how it might be fading away or it might be it might be not as strong as it should be, yeah? Because so many things claim people's attention. It could be just getting on with your life. It could just be your ethnic identity becomes more important to you, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. You've just, you just move away from that feeling or it, ebbs, it goes down your agenda. And the thing is, what I'm trying to say is I think we need to take active measures to rebuild that, to rebuild it. And I don't just mean through the internet. I think we need to have things, concrete things like exchanges. Mm-hmm. We need to build transnational networks. <coughs> we, we share our knowledge, our expertise, right, um, that we have uh, with other parts of the Ummah that need it. Yeah. You know, beyond philanthropy, there are things we do well. Philanthropy, we, British Muslims, we do like 700 million a year in philanthropy, right? And it, mostly emergency relief. Um, and that's another strand of Ayan's research, and that, rep- that report is going to come out, um, mm-hmm. I think, le- early next year. But the headline figure is 700 million, which is a lot of money. And, and we raise that to help the most needy Muslims. And that mm-hmm. is almost solidarity, right? The other thing we do is remittances. Remittances are really significant, right? You know, this is like a personal... That doesn't f- come under um, charity. It's separate. Yeah, it's yeah. separate. No, remittances... It's probably are, in the billions, are, isn't it? You know, it's bigger than foreign yeah. direct investment. From Western nations to, mm. to Muslim countries, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than aid and development budget. So remittance is bigger than either of those. We mm. never really talk about it. We go straight to one family to another, but that's a very concrete yeah. way that, that, that people help. Probably so, hard to um, measure though, or track. <laughs> no, no, there's quite a lot of work on it actually, yeah. but but more work could be done on it. Um, and 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 it's is brittle because obviously families change over time, and if families aren't reconnecting with their family, quote unquote, back home, then you know that that, that feeling of attachment can fade, and mm. remittances can stop, and so on in the third generation, particularly right yeah. of settlement. But you know, it's still really important, and it's something we never really talk about or think about. Yeah. So I, mean, I want to I want to, I want to um, probe a bit further, but before that, I'm just curious. When you talk about a Muslim minority, how do you kind of um, um, how do you kind of define that? Because I mean, one way is okay, looking at national board, borders and boundaries, and okay, what, what's the percentage of the total, and what, you know, if Muslims are uh, not the biggest group. But if I look at somewhere like you know where we are now, Whitechapel. <laughs> it's like a no, it's like I, a little emirate, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. But it can give a false sense of comfort, mm-hmm. maybe, um, to look at it that way. Um, when, when you have these kind of places that feel Muslimified, uh, uh, mus- whatever yeah. that you, you want to call it. So I think, I think, uh, yeah, in the report we go into that. It's not just about numbers. 
Okay, mm. so minority minority has kind of two contexts. One which you, which you just mentioned is the formation of nation states in the yeah. 17th century, right? Basically, in Europe, and and that was the idea that you would have in within a territory you would have exclusive loyalty to the monarch, and that included minority. So minority is defined at that yeah. point. But the, but the, but the the experience of Muslims was different. It was min- it was the idea of minority and colonialism, and that was very different because he had a colonial minority, numerical numer- numerical minority. Mm. Say that three times. Really quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ruling over the territory, but, but over a majority population. But that that majority population was divided, defined, and divided up. In order to rule, so mm-hmm. they could be defi- divided up by religion, could be divided up by ethnicity, could be divided up by tribe, language. Yeah. No, no, but it, it was they were defined, divided, mm-hmm. and ruled. You know, I know we talk about this old phrase of div- divide and rule, but actually, mm-hmm. it's define and, and divide and rule. They actually created some of these ideas. Yeah. Okay, so for instance, Hinduism, you know, uh, really w- wasn't an ism. In any sense of the word, in the nineteenth century, yeah. it, it was part of the it was part of the British census, okay, of India, uh, and you had all these disparate local traditions. And you had this very old scriptural traditions with different languages, mm. this hodgepodge of things coming under umbrella of Hinduism for the mm. first time, and then it became a politicized identity in the twentieth century. But it didn't exist before then, yeah. not in a discreet way that Islam did. So, so the thing is, it was quote unquote invented in colonialism, yeah. but it was Puts a way. A it was spin. a way to divide Hindu, you know, Hindus, yeah. Hindus from Muslims in India, when they'd been under a composite system under the Mughals for for centuries. And Puts another were, spin on the fact that Rishi Sunak is now the prime minister of uh, of UK, and he's a, a claimant of a, a religion practically invented by the British Empire. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, me saying that isn't going to make me very popular with <laughs> with with Hindus, but you know, it is it is what the yeah. academic scholarship is, is says, yeah, you know. Yeah. And we had a podcast with um, Adan Rashid, the historian. He pretty much said the same thing. You know, Hinduism was created by the British. Um, but uh, yeah, you were saying so. So, so I'm saying that the, the, the minority has a political yeah. history as a concept. Mm. So it's either within the nation state or within colonialism and Muslims have experienced, you've migrated mm. to the West, experienced both states of being minority. Okay, yeah. And what, what, what we say in the report that, you know, pragmatically, we, every Muslim, you know, like community activist, community builder, thinker in, in the West for 130 years, mm. as far as I can tell, they all understood that we worked pragmatically with work from we work as a minority pragmatically but but in our being in who we are we're part of the ummah yeah. so you're always looking out at the same time as being rooted where you are mm-hmm. and we're, we're always walking that always walking that line trying to do both and what i'm saying as we get more um settled and if you like acculturated nationalized say in britain we still need to deliberately make really strong efforts to to work outwards at the same time the whole time. Do you mean outwards to Muslims around the world to or d- outwards towards no, the No, to, to the Ummah, to the Ummah. Okay. You know, minorities and majority mm. Muslim world. We need to make a concerted effort to always make sure we have an international dimension there because mm. we can't become parochialized. You know, we need, but we need to do it in a structured way, mm-hmm. not just driven by emotion and reacting to crisis, floods and earthquakes and so on. We need to start to think with a much kind of more um, developmental way how, how do we empower the ourselves and the ummah what and does that look like I think you know so some of the basics would be basically trying to rebuild the civilization of Islam mm. you know so you know your first but, report <laughs> you know but we've got to rebuild our edu- you know it's like yeah. economics it's education it's 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 all of those things it's it's bringing some mm. stability and, and I'm not going to go into the whole question. And the report doesn't deliberately doesn't mention caliphate for a very simple reason because Ayan is thinking about the next three steps or four steps, not you know maybe not twenty steps ahead. No. You know when when we look at where we are right now, you have to give I think people pragmatic steps to take. You know, g- give people achievable things to do, and they give mm-hmm. them a sense of purpose. You might have a grand vision at the end of it, but mm-hmm. I think what, what we're lacking is those first three to five steps 
And I think that's how we that, that practical way. Sometimes how if we you just give them like a really far away distant thing that kind of inhibits you from actually doing something practical now, isn't it? Well, you might feel yeah. that it, it gives you comfort to think of that aspiration, yeah. but it doesn't empower you to act. Mm. You know, to for what's within your grasp. Let me put it that way. What's what's yeah. what's it within your grasp? I don't just mean as an individual. I mean like we've got to combine. You know, we've got to desectarianize a lot of issues in our community so that we can actually work at scale together. Because yeah. otherwise, there's certain like cross-cutting issues that unless we come together, we won't really solve them. Um, you know, and let's take um, high levels of juvenile incarceration in our community, for instance. You know, it's one of those <coughs> things where we've got, I don't know, I think it's something like 13% or something of prisoners in the British yeah. system are Muslim, you know, which is you know, far bigger than our percentage in the population, um, you know, we still aren't doing anything, you know, that much about that issue. Um, we've had masses of new refugee communities, but we're really not doing much for them, like mm -hmm. the Rohingya in Britain. We've got quite a large Rohingya community, but they're sort of off the agenda of our established community organisations. I mean, I could mm -hmm. go on, but we've got gaps yeah. in things that we're not actually dealing with. You know, we're advocacy sort of focused around two things dealing with securitization of the state and the other one is islamophobia and they're kind of interrelated one is yeah. sort of state islamophobia <coughs> the other one's kind of cultural and media mm. kind of islamophobia right and online but but it's we've clustered all our advocacy efforts around those two areas but there's all these other things that we've not actually worked on what else do we need like friends i'll give you one example we've got actually muslim migrant and refugees dying in the channel but there isn't a single high profile um uh a campaign advocacy crime from our community on that issue i'm yeah. not saying there's nobody working <coughs> in that space but but considering the fact that many of these refugees are coming from syria afghanistan mm. africa north africa and so on we're not actually when when it's not on our radar for some reason which is nobody's against it yeah. Right. No, nobody thinks it would be a bad thing to do. It's just that we're not doing it. And so, you know, this is what I'm trying to say that, you know, we really need to. I mean, one of the things I think we do, one of the things the report says we do need to strengthen our advocacy sector more yeah. and, and, and build its capacity because and professionalize it more. Um, and, and knock out some of the redundancies in there because like we're clustered on those two issues. Yeah. But we're not yeah. looking at the, like a broader array of work that we could be looking mm. at. Um, it's not that, that we should extend our work outwards on those two issues, if you like, and, and sort of go global and become glo global advocate bodies. There are also other issues, like I said, the refugee yeah. crisis we're not looking at. So this is what I'm trying to say. I think we taking stock is always useful because when you do a gap analysis, mm. then you know that, okay, nobody's doing this really. If you move in and do that work, let's say, you know, your organisation takes that up, everybody would just be grateful because... Yeah. Nobody else is doing so it. So, you did you do basically like a gap analysis of all the issues of Muslims in the UK, or did you like look at different minorities as well as part of your research? I mean, basically, I, we did a big data set analysis of thirty Muslim minority, thirty-one Muslim minorities around the world, mm -hmm. um, but it was kind of like very broad brushstrokes. So, we we were looking at two two criteria, both based on the Makassid. One is um, economic uh kind of you can say prosperity okay the other one is are you free to practice your religion or not mm. you know you could define that very concretely you know can you practice your religion openly can you build a mosque can you have muslim associations can you teach your kids your values can you sit out madrasas can you have halal meat yeah. anything you know like the fundamentals <coughs> of muslim Pinnacle life of, uh Muslim life. You know, no, just the fundamentals, uh, you know, I, you know, do, do you, and are, are you allowed to do those things or not? Are they encouraged? Is there any persecution? Mm. You know, there are certain like vectors, you, there are certain sort of, are there any legal restrictions? There are certain, but I'm talking about minorities now, not majorities. Majority religions could be treated preferentially, right? Mm. They could have more freedoms than the minorities, right? So we're just, yeah. we're specifically looking at minorities. So Minorities so, being Muslim minorities. Muslim minorities, yeah. yeah. So we looked at thir 31 countries with populations of over a million. So the smallest, yeah. So, so the smallest was South Africa, which was just over a million, and the largest is India, mm. with over two hundred million. Uh, and we basically three groups emerge out of the that analysis. One is you've got the big, the key three, which is India, Russia, and China. They've all got very large historic Muslim minorities, 
which are all under, um, because of the, the geopolitical power of these three countries and nuclear powers, yeah. they've all got economic clout, is very difficult for the, the Muslim world to get real leverage on those issues. Mm. You know, it, it, it's a challenge politically. And how and many Muslims does that account for? These three countries. Uh, I think it's it's probably in the region of about. Uh, let me think off the top of my head. Well, obviously India's over two hundred million. Mm. China's around twelve to fourteen million, and then and then Russia's about is similar, about twenty million. Okay. So so it's it's. But but the historic and important minorities, you know, they, they've yeah. got you know a, a long contributions to the Islamic civilization. No, but the the, the, that, they were centers of scholarship. They yeah. were they were you know they were civilizational powerhouses. Um, so that that big three present a very particular set of, of political challenges, right? Uh, mm. uh, then the, then after that, you've got you've got um, the Africa fourteen. So that's fourteen sub-Saharan. Muslim minorities of over 100 million in total. 100 million in total. Those 14 minorities. And they go from like middle income countries like South Africa to some of the poorest countries in the in the Mm. world like Mozambique. Okay. And but one of the really striking things about those 14 countries is they've got very high levels of religious freedom Mm. like across the board. Okay. And you know that's in, that's important because actually that gives them some political agency. I mean, they may not have a lot of means, but I take the example of Ghana, which is okay. It's a Muslim majority country. It's in West Africa. It's, it's you know it's one of the wealthier countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. But what's really important is that there is a small country politically, but they're the ones who took uh, Myanmar to the international court yeah. in 2019 to have. The ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya class as a mm. genocide. They're the ones who did it, and you know, all credit to them. So you don't have to be the most powerful nation in the world, but if you show almost solidarity and you actually show leadership, mm. you can do a lot without much resources and clout mm. if you make the right move. If you know what I mean, like yeah. I make a smart yeah. move. Yeah. So that's just a good example how I think you know we shouldn't just see these minorities as just recipients of aid or whatever. We should actually understand what they can contribute. Ghana is a Muslim majority country, right? But I'm talking about it has yeah. high levels of religious freedom, mm. and that's what it shares in common with these 14 minorities. Mm. And then the third group is is the Western Nine. These are all relatively new communities, you know, with roots in the 19th century, right? Except for Bosnia. Where Islam emerges in the mm. in the 16th century, right, and and it's the it's it's just below being a majority, so it's a kind of the largest minority, okay, just on like mm. 40 48 percent or something like that, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So the thing is that these these they've got higher income and they've got relatively high levels of freedom, and so you know this Western nine again, although they're relatively new and they number about 30 million in total. If you add them all up together, it's about 30 million. You know, the, the, numerically, they're not very big in number, but, but they've got certain advantages. That, that, that 30 they can million, that's in, excluding the illegal immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we live in an age, brother, where of Nigel Farage, <laughs> where talking up the numbers could be politically, you know... <laughs> Let's just stick to the I official have figures. The population. Let's just stick to the official figure. Yeah, I know you can say that in Tower Hamlets, brother, but you know, try yeah. living in a, in a Brexit land in the north. No thanks. So you know, yeah, no, the days when community leaders used to boast yeah. us being five million back in 1990. I think they're long yeah. over now. I think we've got to be a bit more circumspect about yeah. not have like, yes, we're going to outbreed everybody. <laughs> You know, Challenge accepted. Yeah, the only thing is, like, <laughs> let's have bigger families that yeah. will solve the problems of the Ummah. Um, so, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, I think, so th- that, that's the big breakdown that we did. And then, and, but then, we, you know, you couldn't do a detailed analysis of each, yeah, of each yeah. one. That would be an encyclopedia. But I did, we did look at Britain uh, in the final section of the report because obviously, like, you know, we, it's what I know best. <laughs> so, you know. So I wanted to talk. I wanted to get. It's because it's the best country. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a love letter as well to my community. You know, they they inspired me towards Islam, and you know, it's been my family, and they've infuriated me, and they've inspired me, and all sorts in the last thirty years. So it was a kind of a love letter to to my community. You know, 
Um, mm. There's no XXX at the end <laughs> of the report, don't worry. Um, but no, it's concern, it's concern, isn't it? You know, you know when you see... Um, you see the potential, you know, you don't want to see that wasted. You want to see how we can maximise what we've got and what we can do with. And I, I don't, you know, there's a lot of people think, you know, when you talk about the ummah and, and being, you know, there's a lot of cynicism around, mm. yeah, in our community. And, and I wanted to write against that as well. I want us to, like, be more, more sober. So in other words, you know, because we're not supposed to drink. I don't know if you... <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know if that was a drum ro- yeah. roll worthy. It but was anyway, a forced one. Yeah, it was forced, okay. yeah. I think so, yeah. I, so, saw you, I saw you pressing it with your eyes. Yeah, I was, pr- I was like, so <laughs> press the button, yeah. Um, no, but I, I think that um, on, a, on a serious note, you know, I, I, I think that we just have to take stock, feel the power mm. that we do have. Quite often we talk like we don't have any power. I, I always so, say, I always say, this community here is 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 a sleeping giant. If we we just need to use, uh, uh, you know, get our our resources used in a strategic way, mm. and and with some people showing some leadership, and we could do lots, um, yeah. even just in the UK. You no, know, well, I, I believe the that. thing that really kind of um, gave me a massive, I guess, a, a, you know, wake up call was. Uh, had having Ismail Patel on the podcast a while oh, ago. Okay, it was last year, I think, when the the last um, attack on Gaza was, and he said he doesn't know of a single MP that didn't have fewer than a thousand letters sent to them, logged through just their website, right? And Friends okay. of Al Aqsa is kind of you know one of the. Um, the organization that we are, we are proud of as a as Muslim yeah, yeah it's, it's just celebrated its yeah. 25th anniversary you know and by the end of it it was like more than uh, 250 odd thousand messages sent to MPs and I mentioned this once in in Jumma and an old uncle came up to me and he said I've lived in this country for 40 years and now was the first time I messaged my MP so I was thinking like it's kind of like that slow period and then hopefully like an exponential increase of Muslims, you know, with a, a desire to do something who feel, yeah. you know, they don't feel like a guest here. That they, they feel that this is their, their home and now they want to, you know, utilize some of their power. But it, it requires some, you know, channeling uh, into strategic kind of yeah. I mean, I, guess. I, I think there's, a, there's an element of tarbiyah is important here as well in the mm. sense that I, I think one of the things that we... I mentioned in the report is that I feel our systems of tarbiya were designed in a period when when Muslims were in a majority uh, yeah, power, yeah, and so yeah. the, the the kind of the, their focus is knocking away egotism mm. and pride, and and that's sti- that's still in <laughs> so the you books. Need some of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> but minority. <laughs> no, no, no. But I th- I think it's a different problem. Mm. I I see, you can disagree with me. I think it's different. What I see is underconfidence. Yeah. Masked with bravado. Wow, how how does that work? Well, because you're covering your feeling of of disempowerment. Ah, right. Yeah, by acting, acting, acting. A performance of a performance strong, of strength. strength. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know if it's actual confidence. I I, f- yeah. I feel our tarbiyah needs to instill a sense of self dignity, self worth, and confidence yeah. in our in our young people. So that they don't need to act tough; they just are tough. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, That's a good quote. <laughs> Put that in a graphic somewhere. <laughs> so you know, I, I I think I think it's important. Um, I think it's important. Uh, so we have to take a holistic view uh, of all of these things. Uh, I yeah. think one of the things I mentioned in the report is the difference between I want is that Muslim minorities have a huge potential of soft power. So soft power it means persuasive power and you know to persuade whom persuade each other and the world um, you know because at the end of the day the prophets the prophets they they had persuasive force they have the message of Tawheed Risala and Akhira and and that that message you know was the way that they persuaded Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned their hearts through the method of of persuasion. So the thing is that we, you mm. know, okay, we, we have this idea that, you know, if we have our, our dean within the boundaries of our main community institutions, your family, 
mosque, madrasa, etc., right? But but Islamic soft power actually sees when that's exercised, you see the the the, the virtues of Islam by word and deed outside of those institutions mm. in the world. Okay, and and it, and and it's 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 being able to kind of exemplify that. You know, so it's sort of, it's standing tall and acting on our values in the world. That is what I think is our yeah. Islamic soft power, if I can put it that way. And minorities, because we come from, Islam is universal, right? But, and, and the thing is, it's it's a multi-civilizational um, community because we've got the core, but then we have these minorities plugged into the Indic civilization, the Chinese civilization, the Russian civilization, European, African, American civilizations, right? If we get this ummah connected and really talking with each other, then that cultural diversity is a driver for creativity, mm. innovation, and change. And so our cultural difference can be a source of strength. When you go for Hajj in Umrah, it's at its most like powerful. Mm. You see the beauty of that diversity when you're doing the tawaf. It hits you. People, okay, maybe people reading du'as in Arabic, but you hear so many other languages, people <coughs> making prayers in so many other languages. And like, I particularly enjoy seeing all the different topis, mm. you know, that the men have got on, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, just that diversity, right? And, and you know, you see a Chechen one minute in a, in a kind of fur hat, and the next minute you'll see, you know, a Yemeni or whatever. Yeah. It's just cool. And you can see this is a universal religion. And beyond it kind of being kind of poster diversity <clears throat> we've got to think about how actually the minorities can feed in that energy mm -hmm. and experience into into the core and vice versa so you know in a mature relationship we're going to be hopefully yeah. aiming for that win-win so this is what i'm trying to say i think we need to kind of get yeah. away from the way that it's being controlled by states nation for nationalistic purposes and we need to kind of it's when we're reviving that civilizational linkages through education, through cultural contact, obviously through the internet, but through beyond business, that, maybe business, import, business, export. whatever. Yeah. One it, thing in the last report that uh, uh, the first report, building a civilization of some, kind of really hit me was the first and second um, largest trading partners of every Muslim majority country is USA and China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, trade <laughs> is a like, huge trade why is don't a you big just trade amongst each other and like support. No, no, know, trade is a huge part of it, but but you know the colonial period mm. created networks that actually extra extracted resources from the colonies. Yeah. And so the way that, you know, we, we have to rebuild those linkages, literally have to rebuild those roads, yeah. rail and mm. and and so on because uh, you know between the the belt, the equatorial belt that is the kind of the Muslim the, you know the core between Indonesia and uh, uh, and the Morocco, that core needs to be connected. You so know, I never thought of it that way. It is kind of we live around the where the most sunlight is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the most nur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so pr pr presumably you've got different strategies you have to employ for. Like a minority, Muslim minority is so varied. It's like Muslim minority in the UK is not like the Uyghurs in, you know, East Turkestan. Of course. Occupied yeah. by China. No, no. So would you say your focus has been on the Muslim minorities that have relative freedom and, and, and resources? Yeah, I mean, there are limitations to the report. Um, I think above and beyond some of the, you know, basically what I did was I went back and I, because I'm a bit of a history buff. I went back and I looked at 130 community historian apparently community historian. <laughs> I, I, you know I, I looked at 130 years of community organizing by Muslims in the West wow and tried to understand what it was you know from Malcolm X to Abdullah Quilliam you know and across the board I tried to be inclusive mm. because I believe these these are not sectarian strategies I believe these are s strategies in response to being in a minority situation they're strategies that make sense if you're trying yeah. to build so, you know, I mentioned 10 strategies, like a toolkit, based on what our pioneers did and what worked for them and what was successful. Um, but I mentioned an 11th that none of them dealt with, which is succession planning, because at mm. this stage <laughs> we have big problems <laughs> around succession planning yeah. and continuity of institutions and so on, outside of mosques. But, you know, mm. I mean, you know, they'll continue uh, when the mosque chairman dies off, but they'll be... <laughs> <laughs> his son, takes his son can take over or his nephew yeah. whatever but but we're his best friend 
But, um, you know, joking aside, you know, um, you know, some of those strategies, I won't go through all 10, but I'll mention the, the top three, which are all about different ways of building, uh, building automatic connections. Okay, mm. so one is that Malcolm X was very, made a very striking success of was that he made the cause of black America an automatic cause. So, so we, in other words, we, when we think about politics for Ummah, we think there's something happening over there and we need to go and we need to, we need to help, mm-hmm. right? Uyghurs, the Indian Muslims, whatever it is, right? But we don't look at it the other way. How do we make our situation, the rest of the Ummah care about, about it? Now, this is what Malcolm did. He said the 22 million black, black back in his day, 22 million, you know, this is a, this is a human rights cause. Yeah. He's going to go to the UN. Obviously, he was assassinated before that but he went around africa he went around the middle east um um and he 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 made his he was treated like like a visiting head of state basically wherever he went and he internationalized his cause amongst the muslims so it was on everybody's map so in other words you know we need to internationalize our causes more successfully as part of the ummah's concern you know, and we're not doing that aspect that Malcolm did. That's one of the great lessons we can take from his later part of his life, that, that we don't feel we have an automatic cause here. See what I mean? Do you mean here in the UK? In or? the UK, we feel, like, I think the classic one is prevent. Yeah. And I think there's some work around prevent to make in Britain people aware. You know, Britain, out of 38 Western countries, okay, Britain has actually got, comparatively speaking, the highest number of prevent style policies and is in many ways is mm. the Netherlands got got beat Britain to developing a prevent style policy by a few years not many people know that but Britain has got the most developed and advanced and has been at the it's been exporting it's, it's been well. at the it's been the global leader and it has sort of exported that mm. not just in other western countries but in places like China, China and so on and India. where it's been taken to a kind of industrial level um, kind of counter, counter extremism on steroids, I would call mm, it. You know, yeah. um, we have twenty two indicators. The Chinese have got seventy five, uh, yeah. and and so it's things like having WhatsApp is an indicator, mm, or yeah. visiting a mosque is an indicator. It's just on the next level of surveillance. So, yeah. so the thing, the thing, the thing is, is that you know, we we, yes, I think we have made prevent in Britain an automatic cause to some degree but I'm saying we need to be much more structured and focused about yeah. doing that in future so that's just one example of the 10 things in the toolkit that I mentioned but they're all based on our great pioneers who who had I'll give I'll give you one other example which I think is important is you promised three though so I'm going to say two. well well two, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm going to skip to something else because I'm just winging it to be honest with you <laughs> The, the other one, which is it's going to sound weird, but it might sound a bit weird, but it's 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 giving ourselves permission to be independent. Okay, so quite often we see ourselves as as dependent, and we're waiting for permission to do things from Jamaat leaders of you know or sheikhs or or, or whoever. Mm. And uh, actually, there's an important history of self-authorization actually acting to establish the pillars of community life and 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 not to really wait but to act um and somebody who our community our generation has forgotten is kalam Siddiqui, mm. who died in 1996 but he Muslim was Parliament. yeah but he was quite you know his he was a, trained as a political theorist you know he did a phd in political international politics uh, international relations and he was he was somewhat of a political philosopher and he developed a theory really that was kind of I think from my reading of this I mean Iqbal Siddiqui may not agree with me his son but but the way I read it is that there's a kind of it was riffing off black power so it was a kind of Muslim power Mm. which was you know arguing that we needed robust independent institutions now obviously nobody's saying this there's no such thing as completely independent institutions or regulated under the state but what, what we'd be talking about would be minimizing the chance for political interference taking proactive steps and seeking independent funding for core functions 
So, you know, such as <clears throat> okay, well, there's four or five, but you know, advocacy and representation, philanthropy, and all charity kind of mm -hmm. works, education, um, uh, and um, worship, you know, and you know, community institutions like halal meat. Mm -hmm. Okay, now mosques and halal meat generally are okay, a lot of Muslim schools are funded by the state. Advocacy and representation tend to be struggling to be independent. Mm. So, so, so there are areas where we really need to like rethink how we um, good models, best practice from say Turkey and Malaysia, where they're combining the old calf system with a kind of business combine. Yeah. Okay, and those sophisticated models, which would be possible under British um, company law. We should be able, because you can set up social enterprises and yeah. so on. We need to kind of take best practice, modify it, and bring it to bear. But the most important thing is we need to get our business class on board with the importance of supporting, like, core institutions. Because we've gone through sort of, you know, 15 years of prevent, and it's 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 kind of run a truck, uh, a bull, bull in a china shop through our institutions. community institutions, mm -hmm. right, which were doing important work. And they've been siphoned off into prevent. And it's created a lot of distrust, a lot of mess. Mm. It's held us back, you know. And, um, you know, but the, the, the truth is, if we had core funding for a lot of that stuff that we want to do, then we, they wouldn't have had to run to prevent to keep going. Mm. So the thing is that we need to wean them off. They need to be weaned off local state support for core funding. I mean, the projects with strings and negotiated, you know, you might be able to do something, but core funding has to be independent. Yeah. And so that that's what I'm saying to you is that you know we 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 you know a lot of the youth work that we do is sort of state funded that got siphoned off and to prevent. What if we had enough capacity to run some do our some of our youth work mm. without having to rely on core funding to keep going? You know it's so important. So I think is that there are things that we need to do. We need to get our business community more involved in making these things happen. And there's a lot of focus on arts and education. Yeah, that, that was the other thing I was going to say. A fifth pillar is, for me, is going to be our cultural outreach. Uh, you know, so I, I don't just mean um, our social internet, our social media presence, but our ability to actually express our Islamic values through culture yeah. in the cultural idioms of this society. And there's been reticence to do that from, you know, the conservative orthodox part of our community about, you know, reticence about film, obviously music and other forms of, popular culture mm. expression i'm not saying i'm not going to open that up today but all i'm saying is is that we the more that we are able to interface our muslim experience and humanize it through the cultural idiom of today the more mm. we'll be able to communicate who and what we are and mm. so you know we need to find ways to do that and above and beyond i'm not talking about about having so many followers or whatever I'm talking about the content of what we're yeah. producing is it going to make an impact and so we need to invest in our creators so one of the other problems we have is that our creators have to go outside the community to get support to develop and you know and you in know, doing so kind of shed some of their islamicness muslimness they're no longer in the in, they're no longer interfacing with our our mm. debate and discussion so you want to you 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 know we say, oh, they've gone off. They're, they're too secular, and they're not. No, but actually, it's because we've not made a home for them inside. Yeah, so, yeah. so we need to think about these things. Absolutely. Uh, so, so you know, that's also when, that, when I said soft power. Part of soft power is actually being investing in creative arts and also media skills mm. for the digital revolution. Because obviously, we're in the middle of that revolution. It's still ongoing. It's rapidly changing the world. We don't even know in what ways, right? We're just going through it mm -hmm. now with ourselves and our kids. Um, but we all know every two years you need media retraining because there's going to be some new way <laughs> of communicating, right? Mm -hmm. It's just changing so rapidly, right? So so the thing is that we know we have to keep on top of that. So media skills and creative mm -hmm. skills, that's the fifth kind of element I would say we need to focus on, especially as minorities, because soft power is really important for us. You know, hard power is coercive power, and that's normally resigned to the state. But obviously, we have some element. We have economic power yeah. to a degree. Um, to what you were mentioning well, earlier, and the other thing we have is civil disobedience, which mm -hmm. I, I talk about in the report. We do have the right to withdraw our consent from discriminatory policies. So you know, this is a really important aspect of of our hard power. Now you're talking my language. 
<laughs> no, but I do mention hard power. I mean, yeah. I talk about hard power as well in the report. It's not all, let's all be soft. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but but I'm saying that soft power is something that we've, we, we've done quite a lot of um, civil rights campaigning. But where I feel we're a bit weaker is that cultural projection yeah. of our community. And that's where I feel we need to make a bit more investment there. What, so do you think that's like the end game for you for Muslim minorities in the West? Uh, I mean, in, in terms of the the shorter horizon, the nearer horizon, kind of strengthening those areas, or what? What would you? How would you articulate the the goal for Muslim minorities right now? Well, I mean, I I, I don't know if um, our directors will agree, but I one report I always wanted to do for Ayan would be how to make how how to call fund British Islam independently. That yeah. would be that would be a report. You know, how would you take like the best practice? Um, around the world, yeah, it, where you combine like our community institutions with our business people and actually make the work. How, how was that done successfully? How do you make something financially robust and independent? Like, how do you core fund it, basically? Mm-hmm. I think we have to really apply attention to that and, and start building models that work. And we've got some foundations that have cropped up. Yeah, and there's some interesting yeah. stuff. People tend to be a bit possessive but we actually need to open up that so some there is some innovation going on we actually need to open up and get a dialogue going to actually share best practice because the way i look at it is is that if we want to if if we want if we want you know esan excellence is something actually it's like you raise the sea level everybody gets pulled up off the yeah. seabed all the boats float and, and that we should look at it that way we shouldn't be looking at excellence as as property or branding or, you know we we so, need to change this culture so summarize to get our business classes you know together act, act together to to fund and 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 make um independent our um british muslim institutions yeah the core ones that i core, mentioned yeah like education charity work advocacy uh, advocacy, yeah, creative advocacy sec- needs to to spread further than just prevent and or it needs to div- it needs to do a gap analysis and it needs yeah. to 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 think about what it's not doing you know, so the, yeah, the, I media, mean, you said media as well. Media and creative needs to yeah. be strengthened um, to yeah. what it was. You know, we don't have, uh, we don't have a well-resourced um, media outlet online where people can actually. You've got a team of, let's say, five to ten journalists who could cover stories properly and break stories and things. You know, we're very reliant mm-hmm. on people reshaping press releases and things like that there's not yeah. actually much investigative work going on yeah. and there's there's a huge amount of fantastic stuff going on in our community that we just don't know about and we need to know these stories not just to feel happy but actually to give us courage and to give yeah. us hope because actually the drumbeat of islamophobia from the daily mail et al is actually not good for our it's not good for people's morale yeah, yeah. so you need to actually you need you actually need those we need those stories um to actually believe in ourselves so, so, so seeing that as that's the the kind of those are some of the goals what mm. would you say are the main obstacles to achieving those goals because one of the things i like when you mention you know uh, our cultural kind of production and our confidence and the 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 performance of strength. I always get annoyed when I see kind of Muslims wander into debates amongst like this cult, current culture wars and stuff kind of yeah. imported from America. Muslims kind of jumping on Muslim lefties or Muslim kind of alt-right and kind of just adopting all that kind of stuff where I'm always trying to push, we're always trying to push in Islam to see that look beyond these things and try to create a Muslim power. One of the things that with Asim Qureshi once was called Muslim power. You know, but kind of, can Muslims do their own politics? Can Muslims do their own, have their own kind of uh, views about certain things? You've been quite critical, for example, of Muslims um, warming up to Jordan Peterson. And, you know, I wanted to talk about your, your views about white nativism. I, I, I read your essay, um, but I probably won't have time today. Maybe we can do another thing later on. But, you know, the, the, the problem I have is we, we tend to automatically gravitate towards the 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 popular polarities that there are okay there's left wing and right wing but for me when i look at islamic history or islamic you know cultural norms or islamic fiqh and spirituality and stuff like that i, I don't see this left right division and, and but it's almost as though we have to kind of 
absorb it and 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 and, and parrot it, which is kind of annoying for me when I see it playing out online. And I mean, look, you know, that, that, that that's at the kind of um, popular level, isn't it? Popular yeah. cultural level, and because the internet is in everybody's hands on their phones, you know, you you kind of expect there to be like a huge amount of mm. contact with all of that through memes and like you know what i mean it just mm, it, yeah. and it's you know 15 seconds of distraction but it's not really an idea it's not really you know it's not really concrete you know like long form thinking is definitely under threat at the moment you know just reading a book yeah. is like a like a, a weird activity you know probably we're just used to tiny little bites of information I think that's one reason why podcasts are like reaction. Podcasts are a little bit longer, long form. People can actually sort of get into things a little bit more. Maybe people need the relief of actually getting into something rather than just little segments of images and information, right? Um, you know, the world just look, looks chaotic if that's how you're taking in information, right? That's not learning, is it? That's distraction. So I think that um, part of that is distraction. And absorption into that because of this technical revolution yeah. um the culture wars are distracting america's cultural wars are there because okay we're, we're english speaking and you know 80 percent of the of the internet content or something like that is in english 80 90 percent huge amount um so it's a kind of you know colonization of the internet if you know what i mean mm. uh, as in sort of an anglo-american invention right um, and so, so yeah, we okay. Yes, that 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 frames uh, people's day. Maybe yeah. when they look at their phone, um, I I would say that um, one of the things that I do to kind of counteract that. This is I'm not saying this is as something everybody has to do, but this is one of the things I do. Is that instead of just staying stuck in the present, I like to go and look at history to give mm -hmm. me a long view. Uh, so one of the things that I realized when I t went back and, you know, had a bit of a long view, for instance, is that, you know, Europe, Europe for instance, it claims democracy yeah. as its own inheritance from Greece. But did you know that obviously the Greeks didn't invent democracy in the first <laughs> place? It was the Iraqis. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just... Uh, leave that bit out. <laughs> no, no, but that's, that's crucial. Yeah. You know, that's crucial. Um, you know, so in other words, the kind of version of history that we get isn't, you know... It, it, the, one, the, 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 the one that we get in school is, and on the internet, is, you know, really a kind of Eurocentric kind of view of the world. Mm. So, like... Being able to educate yourself a little bit outside of that is so important for perspective. So when it comes to things like, okay, so democracy is Western, well, maybe not, you know. Yeah, yeah, That's number one. Number two, you know, the sort of things that we think are Western or, or exclusively Western maybe belong, could belong to everybody, including Muslims. So that's mm. the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing is that um, this sort of left-right thing, um, you know, it's got a long history, really it goes back uh, with the muslim experience it goes back 200 years really because obviously left right came out of the french, french revolution, revolution yeah. so it's not that old right it's, like where you sit in the it's 140 <laughs> years so yeah. 240 years old or something mm. like that it's not it's not that long in the history of humanity is it um but muslims definitely re sort of interacted like that quite early on from the mid 19th century ulama and others you know and they wrote and thought about mm constitutionalism was a huge thing in the Muslim world yeah. uh, many ulama even Fuqaha thought that you know some aspects of um, when they were looking at the legal codes and drawing them up they saw um, lots of parallels between French commercial law and Maliki fiqh in Muamalat mm. I'm not saying that, that has to stay but what I'm saying is that there was a long history of interaction with your ulama and intellectuals and we're acting like uh, we often act like we're coming to these things for the first time uh, and which I think is, you know, is, isn't quite right, is it? You need to actually we need to be more literate in our recent history in order to see what our immediate predecessors were, were saying and doing about all of these things. It was quite important to think about that. Otherwise, we can't understand. You know, we've all been through different jamaats, you know, in our careers, and we don't know what they were responding to as well. Yeah. You know, and so we need to understand that too. Um, you know, and th there was a history of. There were previous culture wars, weren't there? So the previous culture was the Cold War, mm. right? For a previous generation. So were you anti-communist or were you? Yeah, there's you a lot of fatawa, but against communism. And but also the other way. Yeah, they happen to be like you know, 
you know, out from countries allied with the Western powers and stuff. Well, yeah, but it's, yeah. in other words, the culture wars aren't yeah. new. And so I think we have a little bit more historical literacy. We could have a better conversation about mm. it, and that could be another, another podcast if you want. Yeah. Um, looks like my so time. My time is sadly <laughs> up. So um, you heard it, folks. We're gonna. Uh, Saad Yahya Burnt has agreed to another podcast in the future. Inshallah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> the biscuits are real. So the donuts. Yeah, um, I was impressed. It's yeah. not food props. Yeah, That's really much of professionals or here. They're, they're, they're actually more expensive than real food. They're food props with food colorings and, and taste <laughs> additives and all kinds of chemicals. Okay, in it. but it won't it won't nourish you. Okay, so, <laughs> there you have it. Zakla uh, khair for attending. I know you've got to uh, head off to the, the report launch event. And Zakla khair for uh, you guys at home for watching, tuning in. Remember, if you like this podcast, give it a like and a share. And remember to let us know in the comments anything you agreed on, disagreed on. If you want to see Usad Yahya, but again, uh, in <laughs> despite his uh, his 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 uh, dodgy dodgy views. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I've been your host, Salman. But if there's anything uh, I missed, probably add it in the on on screen prompts. But uh, yeah, let us know uh, in the comments below what you thought. And also remember to check out islam20c.com forward slash donate. Because as Yahya was saying, you know, we've got to uh, build our media institutions. How's that for a, a, a fundraising segue? Yeah, get, get a close, close up on that thumbs up. Yeah, it's approved by Yahya Bert. And uh, until next time, Zakum Khan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.